Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. So it took me around 25 episodes to start talking about myself. And since I did it in the last episode, I figured since I opened that door, let's open it properly. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk about my research. And the best way I thought of doing that was by inviting three of my high school rugby players. So for, for you guys who don't know, it's not a coincidence that there has been so many rugby players in my podcast. This is because I play rugby. And three years ago... I got injured, uh, an injury that kept me a long time away from the fields. So I decided that I didn't want to be away from the sport. And I asked if I could help coaching somehow. And I got involved with the Austin Hans High School team. And so today here, I have three of my players to whom I'm going to tell them about my research. And we're going to have a, a conversation about science. Jack, Dara, and Connor, how are you guys doing? Very Good. well, very well. Good, thank you. How would you guys introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Jack Cooper. I am going into my senior year at Crockett High School. Uh, I'm in the early college high school program, which means I literally walk across the street as there is an ACC campus across the street, so I take classes there as well. Born and raised in Austin, Texas. I played fly half, fullback, and scrum half this year. And do you like science? Uh, science has always been my favorite subject. Are you going to pursue a career in science? Uh, my plan right now is to go into some sort of biology. Right now I'm thinking of microbiology as I want to go into public health or the CDC. And I've recently taken an interest in microbiology as I took a class last semester. And it was super interesting and the teacher was fantastic and it made me want to pursue a field in it. Nice. That's a hot topic right now. Microbiology and the microbiota and all that. My name is Darren McInnes. I'm 18. I just graduated from McNeil High School, and next year I'm going to be attending Texas A&M. Whoop. Whoop. I think I've always had a, uh, a strong interest in science, but I wouldn't say in the last couple years that I've been overly involved with anything besides my science classes. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Connor Clancy. When oh. you change your voice? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you talk like this and then you go, Hi, my yeah. name is Connor Clancy. Oh, yeah, my, 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 my. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Connor Clancy. I'm 18, graduated from McNeil High School, uh, going to be going to A&M, and I currently play for the Austin Huns. Do you like science? Uh, when I was younger, I used to be a big fan of science, um, but up until recent, I haven't really been too... Uh, too intrigued to, to explore more about it but um, I'm always open to, to new experiences but the reason you guys are here is because you've been the most vocal about liking this podcast at least I don't know if it's because you guys want me to play you or not <laughs> but <laughs> what is your favorite episode of Science Stories uh, my favorite episode is Bacteria and Microbiome with Dr. Carlos 
Uh, I just thought the identification of the E. coli strains was really interesting and how Dr. Carlos was able to use the E. coli strain to identify not only the source of contamination, but also the E. coli patterns all over the world and how the map that she made would like of E. coli strains could be altered based on the part of the world that it was being used in. That was a pretty cool episode. And if you go into microbiology, you, microbiota is going to be a topic you're going to be hearing a lot. Yeah. I would say my favorite episode is the one you did with Dr. Perot, the one about um, acculturation and drinking in Latino culture. I think I've had a lot of influence from Latino culture in my life with friends and everyone I've been around, my rugby coach. So I think that that's had a bit, that, that initially intrigued me and uh, to come listen to the episode. And I thought that Dr. Pro was very well-spoken and that she made it very easy to understand and it was a very enjoyable listen. ¿Hablas español? Claro que sí. <laughs> that's so good. That's good. You, you have a good accent too. Like, you know, Thank you. You have a good pronunciation, I mean. I've been practicing. Uh, my favorite episode has to be the one with uh, Dr. Stevens uh, about the weightlifting. Um, uh, for the first thing that drew me to it was that I like to go in the gym, I like to exercise. So that's what initially drew me to it. And then while I was listening, he got me interested in the whole the way the, the protein spread and his research. And then I also checked out his, uh, the community that he's in, uh, Scientists Who Lift. I thought that was very, uh, very, very interesting. Nice, nice. Let's do just a couple of random questions before we start talking about research, okay? What is your favorite science movie? I think I'd say mine is Back to the Future because... Classic. Classic. It's a classic movie. I think it's always been one of my favorite movies. I watched it a long time ago and I've seen it a few times, but I know it isn't the most science-based, but I think time travel's always been a topic that will interest anyone. So I think that it, it's, always, it's always been there in my mind and I love that movie. But it's a movie that it's... Did your parents tell you about it or what? It's way before your time. Yeah, it is. But I think I used to I used to watch a lot more movies than I do now. I used to watch a lot of movies, so I think eventually I had to I had to watch it. It's a it's it's an old one, but it's a classic movie. I think anyone who really likes movies would definitely have seen it. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna keep the same theme as Dar and go with another classic movie. My favorite science movie is Jurassic Park because I was. I went through the dinosaur obsessed phase all the way up, like way past normal. Dudes will drop off the dinosaur phase. I kept it all throughout middle school and most of high school. So younger me seeing all the giant dinosaurs on screen and watching them run around and it was just yeah, it's an amazing movie. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you see the the new movies and work your way back or did you? No, uh, I. The <laughs> there's a funny story about the first Jurassic Park movie I saw. It was the third one, and I was like five or six, and probably not old enough to be watching it. And my mom got pissed at my grandpa for showing it to me, and she was telling him that, that it wasn't appropriate. And he, his defense was, "Well, the kid likes dinosaurs," and my mom's rebuttal was, "But the dinosaurs eat people." Yeah. And he, my grandpa forgot that part. Yeah. And <laughs> my mom was quite annoyed at him for that. <laughs> What about you, Gunnar? Uh, well, those are obviously incredible old films. Went for more of a new film, uh, The Martian, uh, came out kind of recently. But uh, yeah, it's very sci it's uh, it's very science based, especially with lots to do with space. I think space will also interest anyone you talk about with it. Um, 
but yeah, they, the way they grew plants on Mars, the way they transported the materials and the way they communicated, I think everything everything about that film just really interesting. Yeah, it's a really cool one. I like the stubbornness of the main character. Like when they when they when they say so he's a, a botanist, right? He's a botanist, yeah. Botanist. And he they say like you're doing things wrong. No they say like all the experts here on earth recommend you do something else. And he's like, No, they're wrong. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's quite a there's, quite a headstrong character. There's definitely a lot of ego in science too and yeah, doesn't matter. <laughs> then is there a famous scientist that you admire or know or jumps to your mind? Uh, the first one that comes to my mind uh, has to be Stephen Hawking. Uh, definitely one of the most uh, iconic scientists as of recent. Um, but yeah, I watched, uh, I obviously knew about him like everyone else does, but then I watched his film, The Theory of Everything, which is based on his life. And that got me really interested in like black holes, like space-time singularities and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that really intrigued me. Did you go and read his work? I, I did research it a little bit, yeah. I, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm an expert now, but I'd say I definitely, uh, I definitely read up on the whole uh, black holes and all that kind of stuff. Nice, nice. When you asked the question, I thought of a few months ago. I went to uh, a talk downtown. Dr. Brian Green went and gave a talk downtown. My dad took me down to see it. He's a theoretical physicist, so he talked for I don't know an hour and an hour and a half. And I went down with my dad to have a listen, and. It was it was really enjoyable, and he talked a lot about some things that I didn't really understand. But he gave a great speech and kind of broke it down in a way that was that a really complex things were more understandable. Was he like a great? Was he a great communicator? Yeah, he was. He definitely. I think the topic was very complicated, and he was able to break it down in a way so that everyone, even at my age, I was able to understand what he was, where he was going with everything. Uh, my favorite scientist is Marie Curie because uh, with her work with radiation and how she was so dedicated to her work. And I just thought it was really amazing how even though she was working with incredibly dangerous materials, the work that she did was like so helped save and protect a lot more people down the road. And I just thought it was really inspirational how much how, how dedicated she was it was definitely not easy for her because being a woman in science back in the day was really hard now it's gotten better still has ways to go but it was really bad and i think she had to publish her first findings under her husband's name because if not they will not take it seriously which is pretty pretty hard for her at the beginning but finally she got the recognition she deserved you know the idea of this podcast is to try to demystify image of scientists so first, I have to ask you, what is the image? What's the first image that comes to your mind when I ask you, what is a scientist? Or think of a scientist. I would definitely say it's a very complex person, like in a white lab coat in their lab doing the research. When I think of a scientist, I think of a story my dad told me when he worked for Smithline Beecham's, which is a pharmaceutical company. Uh, he told me how he was often the dumbest person in the room but one man really stood out to him and it was, I forget his name, but he was like top in his field. And he was like one of the smartest people he'd ever met. Incredibly intelligent, knew almost everything there was to know about his field, but he couldn't drive himself home. <laughs> he, he couldn't get, drive? Yeah, no, his wife had always came and picked him up. 
And I just thought that was really interesting because he's one of the smartest people in the world and he can't drive himself home. You know, that's really interesting because I think that's one of one of the misconceptions that people have, that in order to be a scientist, you have to be smart. I don't think that's true at all. You just have to be dedicated. I think dedication is way more important than being smart in science, 100%. Yeah. You guys have the same, had the same image about scientists? Oh, yeah. I yeah, a lot of them as like very pristine, very, no, usually old, but uh, very educated. Did the podcast help change that image? Yeah, I think so. You've had a... You've had younger guests on, people who are definitely more down-to-earth than I think I imagined before. Anybody can be a scientist, right? Yeah, and a lot of the scientists have, like, stuff going on outside of their science, which is, which is like, for example, you got to coach a rugby team. Yeah, I mean, scientists are people too, right? We have our hobbies, and we like to have fun too. So before we go to a break and we start talking about my research, one final question. Is there any scientific discovery that blows your mind? The scientific discovery that blows my mind is uh, the fact that uh, humans share over 60% of their DNA with bananas. <laughs> Why does that blow your mind? Because <laughs> <laughs> humans and bananas just aren't similar at all. But I just think it's crazy that if you look in the DNA, we're, we're, we're very similar. That's pretty funny. What about you, Jack? Uh, my favorite scientific kind of discovery is like convergent evolution. I think it's really amazing that independent species can develop the same traits separate from each other like bats and birds both developing wings and different types of crustaceans evolving into crabs i just thought it was really interesting that there's almost like a formula that that works no matter where you are in the world that's pretty cool yeah it's really cool yeah one of the things that makes me think the most is black holes like when i when i went downtown with my dad to the talk that was one of the topics that he talked about, and I think it's such a complex thing that we don't really know everything that goes into it yet, and there's so much left to wonder that I think it's kind of a, it's a really interesting topic. And I think not so recently they just took a picture of a black hole for the first time, no? I haven't kept up with the NASA, the space news as, I, as much as I should have, but I'm definitely thinking of doing an episode and trying to, I actually know someone that works at NASA and trying to get him to come and talk about all the recent findings, yeah. It's pretty cool. Lots of things are happening. It's really cool. All right, so let's do a, a break, and then we come back and we talk a little bit about my research, all right? Sounds good. Yeah, I can't wait. Now we're going to go with the songs that Dara picked, and let's see what kind of music he picked. Break <laughs> Y'all, which part are y'all playing basketball? 
me on the court and I'm troubled Last week fucked around and got a triple-double Freaking niggas every way like MJ I can't believe today was a good day Showers. Didn't even get no static from the cowards Cause just yesterday them booze tried to For you guys who are listening, there's a little bit of dancing going around the studio right now. Dara, what are we listening to? This is Horse Outside by the Rubber Bandits. It's an Irish band from where my parents are from. Is that why you picked it? Oh yeah, but it's, it's a classic. <laughs> What about before the break? We were listening to It Was A Good Day by Ice Cube. I wouldn't say there's too much meaning behind the song but to me, but it's just talking about having a good day, having a good time. Are That's you, are you having a good time? To, I am having a great time. Good, 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 good. All right. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my journey in science. Feel free to interrupt me and ask me any questions you, you like. Sounds good. All right. I started, as you guys know, I'm from Uruguay. Uruguay, you guys know where Uruguay is? South America. Yes better by now <laughs> small country in south america good we speak spanish there as you can tell and i did my bachelor's and my undergrad studies there in uruguay at the university there and when i started university i was young like you guys and adventurous and all that so i i wanted to join a project that was exciting and cool at least that at the time i thought it was exciting and cool this is my first year as a freshman i started looking and asking professors can I volunteer in any project? And they would offer me, yeah, you can help collect snails or you can do collect water samples and stuff like that. And none of them seemed too appealing to me until I ran into this behavioral ecologist that she did research in an island off the coast of Uruguay where we have the biggest South American colony of fur seals and sea lions. I was like, that sounds cool. And she invited me to go to this island. And the way it works is there are shifts of 15 days. So you cannot get off the island. And you have to bring your water and you have to bring your food. There are houses and there is infrastructure for you to stay and to do research. There's, there are labs and everything. But there's only two people that live in the island. One is the lighthouse operator. <laughs> and the other one is a sea lion protector, something like that, whose only job is to make sure nobody lands in the island. That's it. So I go, and the idea is to do some population dynamics studies. The situation is that we have two islands where these fur seals are breeding. And in one island, the population is decreasing. And in the other one, the population is increasing. And so Valentina Franco Trecu, you can look, she has a, a lot of articles about the South American fur sea and, and the sea lions. And she was trying to understand what's going on with the population dynamics. And we did some really cool stuff, especially for a freshman. The way it works in, in sea lions and fur seals is they, in December, which is our summer there, they go there 
and they rep they give birth to a little pup, one per female. Immediately they copulate and they're pregnant again. So they're always pregnant or breastfeeding, which they don't have a breast, but yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some critical periods are, for example, the first time the female goes to feed herself after the baby is born, because that's the biggest bottleneck whether the baby is gonna make it or not. If he survives that first feeding trip, then the baby has a bigger probability of surviving, right? Uh, when the mother leaves him to go get food? Yes, because the mother leaves for at least three, four days. She goes into these long hunting trips and they go from Uruguay, instead of fishing in the nearby waters of Uruguay, they go all the way down to Argentina and they eat there and then they come back because it's energetically better to do that. I was watching Planet Earth and I, a lot of these, um, this, I, saw, I, I saw this thing, I don't know if it was specifically sea lions, but basically, yeah, the moms leave the kids and then they try and make that journey, right? Do you know the, like, the percentage of how many of those seals actually make it there or like how many don't, you know what I mean? The, the feeding and back? Yeah. Oh, the, that percentage is really high. It's one of those species whose biggest death rates is when they're pups. Once they are adults, like fully mature adults, they don't get killed off that much, especially in South America because they don't have a lot of big predators there. We don't have like white sharks and stuff like that. We have some killer whales that can get them every now and then, and then they can die, of course, of whatever. And, and some sharks as well might get them. But the way we know that they go all the way down to Argentina and back is because we put GPSs on them. And this was pretty cool because we would have to catch them, anesthetize them, and then stick a GPS in their, in their back, basically. And that's, that was super adventurous. The way we, we would catch them was with a lasso. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. I, I knew how to use a lasso before coming to Texas because of, of my experience in the Sea Lion Island. It's insane. it's insane. You actually need to catch it with two lassos one from one side, one from the other, because they are really strong, yeah. like really strong. And then the veterinarian goes and anesthetizes really quick. We try to keep it as chill as possible, like not to stress her out. And then you stick the GPS there and, and then she would wake up and, and go back with his pup and it was all good. Like no no damage done. But uh, uh, You said that the pups had a, like a really low, like the biggest bottleneck of them surviving was when their mother leaves for the first time. What was the percentage, like the chance of survival after the mom leaves? I wouldn't know the, the percentage per se. How many of the pups make it to adults? Yeah, like how good are their chances of surviving? Unless something happens that the mother loses the, their pup or something, they're pretty good, yeah. We would tag the pups and we would tag the moms and every day we would go and check on them. And this research, I did it for three or four years as a volunteer helping and not many pups that we tagged died. So it was pretty good. Uh, what was the biggest threat to the pup's survival? Hunger and pissed off males because they live in such crowded spaces and there are so many pups that are unattended because their mothers are feeding that if they're just wandering around and they run into a male, he might just grab it and, and throw it throw it away yeah, and might, might hurt him. And are, then they, are they like carnivores? Does it like eat the pup or does it just kill No, it? no. The pups will only consume milk at first for one year and the first seals and the sea lions, they consume fish. They would not consume the meat of a pup. What no. happened to the mothers once they got back from feeding if the pup was, wasn't there anymore? Are they, like, you know how mama bears we, are very protective of their children? Were the seals? Yeah, the they, are, they are protective of their children, but there's nothing they can do. I mean, if the, pup is, if the puppy is dead, they're, it's just dead, yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It was really nice, though, to see when the mom comes back from fishing, that they have these particular calls they develop with the mom 
And when they find each other, it's like, and they like get together and it's really nice. Yeah. Family reunion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Was there any sort of like social hierarchy within the colonies? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So you have this reproductive system that it's, it's not an RM. You know what an RM is? No. When, when, a, when a male has many females. Harem? Harem. It's similar to that, but it's not that. Here, a male defends a piece of land, and the m- females that stay in that piece of land, those are, air quotes, his females. If he has a good territory, he'll, he'll have more females. If he has a bad territory, he'll have less females. Yeah. And a good territory is if he has a little pond, because it's so hot, that if they have a pond to like cool off every now and then, it's like, oh, I'm the man, I have, a, I have territory, I have land with a pond, you know? And, and something that's really funny is that all the males that are not able to defend a territory in the breeding area, they go to somewhere that is called the Bachelor's Beach. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah, where all the single guys just lay there, either the two young ones or the two old ones, they just lay there and they do nothing. And that's the ones I had to push away when I wanted to go for a dip. And they would come and swim with me. In the water, they are super friendly. Yeah. Inland, if they're defending territory, right. I wouldn't go close territorial. to them. Yeah, territorial, yeah. Uh, was there any, like, fighting among males for territory? 100%, yeah. They would destroy each other, yeah. Not destroy each other, but I've seen good fights. And how did the fur seals and sea lions react to you? Like, were they standoffish, friendly? Did they, like, seem stressed at all? So what happened is we would have um, a small pier, and to the left side... It was the breeding area that we studied. And to the right side, it was this bachelor's or the singles beach. The problem with sea lions is that they just lay on everything. So we would go in the mornings and they would be all laying in the pier, just sunbathing and all that. So you have to like, come on, boys, let's go, let's go. And you just clap them on and they would go away. But if you were to step into the breeding area, they would try to bite. You never got, you never got bitten? I did get bitten by a pup, <laughs> but through a bag. So he was inside a bag. Yeah. Somebody's had him and she turned around or he turned around and I was there and he just, he beat me, but it wasn't that bad. It was like a strong dog. Because he was scared? Yeah, he was scared. But you know, the puppies, after a while, they get used to you and they're like playful. I can see potential to domesticate them. They're not like super aggressive per se. That was your first experience doing research. Yeah. And then did you, did you enjoy it so much that you knew that's what you wanted to do going forward in college? You know, that's a good question. I wasn't ready in college doing that, right? I enjoyed a lot going out there and being a volunteer doing the research. But when the time came to nail down a topic for my thesis, I just couldn't come up with a great questions about the, the sea lions that wasn't already taken. I kept reading articles and no good questions came to my mind that I would be willing to invest a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to answer that question. So, do, sorry, so does a lot of your research just like kind of end in like you finding a solution rather than just looking for like more research, for example? The problem is every time you find a solution, you find how, how much you don't know yet. When you figure something out, you realize what else you need to figure out. And I was, even before that, before figuring anything out, I was thinking, what do I want to figure out? Trying to come up with a good question with sea lions, it just didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen. And I had all this knowledge already about sea lions and fur seals. I just couldn't use it. And then I went to a class about behavioral ecology, which is a topic I, I liked. And there was this guy who talked about leaf cutting ants. I was, wow, this is amazing. So I really enjoyed reading the articles he sent before the class. And when class came, it was me and him going back and forth. It was amazing. And then the next week, 
I went to a conference and he was there and he gave an amazing talk and I, and I couldn't help it. And I said, I want to do my thesis with you. And everybody's, aren't you like the sea lion guy? He's like, yeah, I, I don't care. Like, I want to do a thesis with, with ants, with leaf cutting ants. So maybe we can do a short break now. And afterwards, I come and tell you about leaf cutting ants. Perfect. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Do you have any other questions about the sea lions? Um, no. no. I think oh, we're good. I think we exhausted that topic. All right. So let's listen to the songs Connor picked. You say them city boys living in those high-rise condos Only left you feeling low Those little smoke glass fancy cars so go fast But never got you where you wanted to go I don't know the song itself, but the voice is pretty easy to recognize to me at least because Oasis was a big thing, even in Uruguay back in the early 2000s. Why did you pick this song? What, so we're listening to Married with Children. Why did you pick this song? Uh, well, I picked this song, um, well, it's mainly because my mom. My mom's introduced me to loads of different genres of music, um, very good like music trivia and all that kind of stuff just because of her. Um, but yeah, Oasis was always one of those uh, standout ones that, you know, even when I was younger, we put on the background. Like, I know, like, it's like loads of Oasis songs. And before the break, we were listening to Talking Tennessee by Morgan Wallen. Yes, Morgan Wallen. Uh, he's a country artist. Uh, I, did, I wasn't really into country uh, up until about a year ago. But one of my friends, Adrian, uh, he, he put me on the, the good country songs. And that was, that was one of my favorite ones by far. So yeah, I listen to that one like all the time. Yeah. Are, are you born in Ireland or in Texas? I was born in, uh, born in Ireland and then I lived there till I was nine years old. Then I moved to America, more specifically California, lived there for three years. Then I moved to Texas and I've been here since. Do you feel Texan now? Uh, yeah, I feel quite American. <laughs> American, but yeah. not Texan yet? Um, I'm definitely, yeah, I don't feel like I'm associated with California at all. I feel like I'm definitely... Definitely, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very associated with Ireland and Texas now. Nice. For sure. Darren and I, we're going to A&M, which is a very, very traditional Texas, like, country school. So. Like, we're we're, we're going to have to go to, like, Cavenders, buy the boots, and, and the cowboy hats and everything. I'd say we, for sure there's a bit of a stereotype around, around, around A&M, but... It's a stereotype, but it's a true stereotype. You guys knew, right? I did my PhD at A&M. Yeah, yeah, okay. that, yeah. I didn't have all the Aggie culture in position that undergrads have, that you guys will have, but I still saw it and it was 
interesting. Yeah. It was definitely a shock when I came from Uruguay. Anyway, as I was saying before the break, I shifted towards leaf cutting ants. So I stayed within the same topic, kind of, ecology and behavior and stuff like that. But now I, I fell in love with this model that is leaf cutting ants. Do you guys know what leaf cutting ants are? Mm -hmm. They cut up the, the leaves to bring it back to eat, make shelter. I don't know what they do with it. but uh, They farm a fungus. They use the leaves to grow a fungus. I did that's not know that. Jack, that's awesome. That you, you like leaf cutting ants, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Did you study the ones found in Texas or the ones in South America? So this is still in Uruguay. Mm -hmm. So I did my master's and my undergrad thesis with a species in Uruguay that is called Acromyrmex lundi and Acromyrmex helleri. It doesn't matter, don't worry. <laughs> and one of them, it's a leaf cutting ant, and the other one is a grass cutting ant. The ones you have here are Ata texana, and they are a little bit bigger than the ones in, in Uruguay. Yeah. So what Jack said is true. The ants, first, and, and, and this is the first thing you have to clarify when you, when you give a talk about leaf cutting ants, is that the ants do not consume the leaves directly. They take them inside the nest where they let them rot. There it grows a fungus which they use as a food source. Say a leaf falls on the sidewalk, would the fungus still grow after the, the rots away? So this is a fungus that only exists in symbiotic association with the ants. So it's not a fungus, don't imagine like a champignon. Do you know what a champignon is? No. Yeah, a mushroom. A mushroom. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> It looks like a white mold that has pieces of leaves in it. I've, I've seen it. I, I, I touched it. I worked with it. And it only occurs inside of the leaf cutting ants' nests. So it's an obligated symbiosis. Symbiosis is when there is a relationship between two species and both of them benefit. In this case, they benefit so much that if one of them dies, the other one dies. So it's an obligated symbiosis. Uh, you said the ants eat the fungus. Do they eat like the mycelium part of the fungus or do the fungus produce like a fruit, like a mushroom or... It's a good question. The adult ants, the ones that you see running around, they don't need a lot of resources to perform work or to run around and do their things. One of the reasons for that is that once they finish growing in their larvae stage, the ants don't grow anymore. So the way they emerge after the larvae stage, that's the way they stay the rest of their lives. So if an ant colony wants to make more soldiers, they would feed larvae more so that they grow more. So by the time they are mature and they emerge from the larvae stage, they are soldiers. There is no transition after they emerge from the larvae stage. Do you guys understand that? Like if I was to come out of my mom fully grown. Exactly. And you would not grow at all. You know, spiders, for example, they, sh they change, they shed their skin or scorpions, like they want well. yeah. yeah, but we're trying to remain in the insect world. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and spiders and scorpions are not insects, are arachnids. But yeah, I was just, a oh my God, I was literally just about to correct you on that. But I was going to be like, well, if that's the case, then spiders are arachnids. I was literally going to get on your <laughs> So we're trying to say it within the arthropods. <laughs> 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 okay, for example, cicadas is a great example. This is an, an insect that grows and therefore you, you see their skin in the, in the plants. It's pretty cool, right? You've yeah. seen that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, ants do not do that. So if you have a tiny ant, if she's born tiny, she's gonna stay tiny his, her whole life. It doesn't matter how much she eats. So the fungus is mostly the source of energy for the larvae because the larvae does grow. It's yeah. the most important to feed the larvae so that they grow the biggest instead of the ants that are already full size. Exactly, yeah. But why, why, do they, why do the ants need all these soldiers? Like why do they need more ants? 
This is a good question, but I don't have the answer for that. What happens is any colony will, will try to grow as much as possible. And the, the interesting thing about ants is that, unlike what people may think, the queen does not tell ants what to do. Each ant makes the decision herself what to do. They are all independent decision-making units, which is a little bit surprising. It's not the queen says, we need more soldiers, make more soldiers. No, it's the nurses realize, for some reason that we are yet to understand, we need more soldiers, therefore let's start feeding the larvae more to produce more soldiers. This thing that I just told you that ants do whatever they think it's necessary, it's really interesting for scientists because it's a division of labor that works perfectly, so ant colonies are really successful, and yet it's each individual making their air quotes right choice all the time. And that led to many, many models of how that division of labor occurs. And the first one and the easiest one was, it depends on the morphology, whatever shape the ant is, that's the task it's gonna make, right? For example, if you have a tiny ant, she's gonna be a nurse taking care of the larvae with delicate mandibles. If you're a huge soldier, you're gonna be defending. If you're a, a worker, you're gonna be cutting and carrying leaf. What I was trying to study is within that world of division of labor, how did ants organize but particularly in the division of labor between carrying and cutting the leaves. And so what I did during my master's is I looked into their mandible wear. Was that to see what type of job they were doing? We knew what type of job they were doing. We knew we could observe whether they were cutting or carrying. I looked into their mandible wear. Do you understand what I, what I say by mandible wear? Uh, yeah, do you mean like what type of mandibles they have or like the no. wear and tear on their mandibles? The wear and tear of the mandibles. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So if you if you pick up an ant from a leaf cutting ant and you look at their mandibles, you you're gonna see that there's variation in how pristine or how worn that mandible looks. What I realized is that the ones that had more worn mandibles are the ones that were carrying, and the ones that had more pristine mandibles are the ones that were cutting. So it was almost like a cycle of the ant, like the ants would cycle out of different jobs. Excellent. 100%. Yeah. As soon as they emerged, their mandibles were pristine. And therefore, their cutting ability was the highest. Oh. Therefore, they would go and cut. As time passed, their mandibles would start getting worn because of just normal use. And then they would stop cutting once it's, it was too complicated and they would start carrying. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. So I spent a lot of time under the microscope collecting ants and looking at their mandibles. And, and these are mandibles that are, I would say half a millimeter long tops, yeah. tiny mandibles. I would take pictures and analyze them and, and characterize them and assign them a worn level. And then I started to experimentally wearing their mandibles down myself. And then would you put them back in to see what they would do? Exactly, what yeah. Do, what do they do? They would switch from cutting to wow. carrying. Oh, okay. Yeah. And was that something you knew before doing the research or were you did you find out through your research that that's how the cycle of ants go through their jobs. I suspected it because we, we knew this was a way to increase the efficiency of the worker towards the colony, but we never had seen it. And there are many things in science that you suspect, and when you actually go and check, it's not the case. So you always have to go and check and have the data to back it up. Yeah, so when it, when it just knows that it's not cutting it like good enough, it just goes to, to carrying the leaves. Yeah. Uh, so you were saying how the ants all work together to cut and move the leaves back. Does that mean 
they're like communicating from ant to ant to be like, hey, I found leaves. Can someone carry these back so I can keep cutting them? And yes. if so, do yes. they use sound or pheromones or how do they communicate from ant to ant? This seems planned, but it's, I promise it's not. That's a great question. These leaf cutting ants, they have something that is really special about, about this genus of ants that they lost their sting. And instead of the sting, in the place where a sting would be, they have a pheromone gland. And this pheromone gland is used to communicate with our ants. So the, the, the way they do it is with pheromones, that's the answer. But they do it in a really cool way that it's a, a self-regulating system. So if they go somewhere and they find a good food resource, on the way back, they would lay their abdomen in the ground and lay a pheromone cue more often than when they go and they find food that is not great. To leave a path. To leave a path and, and to leave a stronger path. So an ant would emerge from the nest and would chase a pheromone. And therefore, if it's a good source, each ant that goes there reinforces, this is good, this is good, yeah. this is good. And when the food source is depleted, the ant that goes back, she would not lay this pheromone trail. And therefore, this pheromone trail will disappear with time and no more ants will go there unnecessarily. Isn't it brilliant? Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. It's simple, perfect, right? Simple, but, uh, it's really simple, effective. but it's brilliant. If I go there and there's food on my way back, I'm going to leave signs. Come on, let's go. This is the way. If I go there and there's no food, but no need to leave signs, and the sign will disappear eventually. Cool. The ants in Texas, well, I was talking to my dad. He in, works in landscaping, so he's seen the leafcutter ants uh, in Texas, and he says that they leave basically like highways, like they burn highways into the ground, and these like nests or these holes and highways can like span over an acre do the south american leafcutter ants also leave like such a big imprint on the environment yeah the ones i studied their longest trails that i follow were like 100 meters so it was, it was not as much as the ones here but i remember once i went to another place within uruguay there was a, a different species and those were ata so they were a genius similar to the ones here those anthills were massive you would see them on google earth and I remember this was pretty cool. This was a side project I did. We were testing um, bait for the ants and they sent me to this remote place and there was no way to get there. And back in the day, I used to bike a lot. And so I took a bus with my bike in the bus and the bus left me 50 kilometers away oh. or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I had to bike and that's the only way we could do it. We had to bike from the bus stop to the town with all the equipment and all that. And I stayed there a couple of days and I would, I would bike from my hotel. And it was not even a hotel, like a place, a my, my dorm, yeah, <laughs> to the ant site every day and do some experience. But those ants were really, those were highways. That was insane. That, they were huge. And the, the, trails, the trails were like exactly as, as your father describes. Yeah. If two ant colonies were close enough to each other, would they also like, say the seals would they be territorial as well or would they combine no they they would fight yeah they would try to avoid each other first but if, for example in the lab we would have these colonies and the way you kept them is in tupperware where they would grow the fungus and you could connect them with with pvc pipes, pipes. Yeah. like you, you just do connections for them and when you saw that a tupperware was getting crowded you just add a connection and put another tupperware and they would expand there and all that right so sometimes you would remove one of those Tupperwares, take it somewhere else, and then you go and put it back. If you happen to put it back in the wrong colony, 
it would be a war and those ants would probably lose it's a numbers game but they would lose yeah, yeah. uh would the ants differentiate could they tell the difference between ants from other colonies using yeah. the pheromones yes yes they have they uh, they have a particular smell and that's how they could tell yeah just knowing all this research about ants and the cutting ants does that ever, does that take the joy out of watching films like a bug's life that's a great question <laughs> yes <laughs> i don't remember that that was so long so long ago but recently i saw a scene from the lion king and they have leaf cutting ants there in a scene and that's completely wrong because there are no leaf cutting ants in africa Disney didn't hire a biologist there. What about, like, like, what about like Ant-Man and stuff like that? Ant-Man I haven't seen. You really? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen I it. I guess you have to. You've got to come back to us all these notes that are wrong. Is it good? Yeah, I mean, it's fine, I guess. I don't know. I don't you know, know what I, I did the other day? I, I, th I thought it was funny. Somebody asked me, what happens when it rains with ants? And I said, I don't know, but check out this really good documentary. And I sent them a scene from Bugs Life when, the, when it started raining. <laughs> <laughs> you know that scene? Yeah, yeah. And they never ask me anything again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen uh, what fire ants do when it rains? I've seen the pictures online of fire ants like creating rafts out of themselves and just floating in rivers. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I I've seen videos of that. I never seen it myself, but it's crazy. Yeah, and we ac we actually see it after rain in the rugby fields. There are way more yeah. fire ant hills. Yeah. So that might be a way they disperse. Yeah, it's crazy. Those fire ants, you know, they come from Argentina. Mm -hmm. They're an invasive species here in Texas. How did they get here? That was just about that. They got brought some, somehow. On in a boat. A, in a boat somehow, yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is that they sting harder here than in Uruguay or in Argentina. Yeah. So this is the Argenti Argentinian fire ant. And it's the one we have in Uruguay as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember them stinging so hard back home. When I came here, it was like, whoa, what's... What's going on? Is there a reason for that? I think they have been selected to be fiercer here. Yeah. Natural selection, maybe it's easier to die in uh, in Texas. I guess so. They have to be meaner and tougher. Yeah. Everything has to be bigger and tougher in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even ants. Uh, one more question about the leafcutter ants. The ones that you studied, were they mainly underground? Well, the nests are 100% underground. Mm -hmm. They forage leaves and grass so it has uh, above have ground. you ever seen like the full extent of one of the nests like have you ever dug it up and just looked at how big they are underground like how much ground they can uh, uh, take over the ones that i study they don't take that much but the ones that i went and did work with you would need a um, construction concrete truck to fill it up and do it and there's actually a really cool video in brazil that the, the biologist says said i have a great idea i'm just gonna fill up an anthill with cement and then check the structure and see, analyze it. And I started doing that. And then two days later, I had to go hire a construction truck and keep pouring, keep pouring, keep pouring. And they, they poured cement for like a week and they start digging out, digging it out, digging it out. And it was, I don't know, the size of a house. It was insane. And you could see all the chambers. It's so cool. Yeah, like look it up in YouTube. Like, uh, How many ants would be in something like millions, that? Millions, yeah. I saw some dude doing it in his backyard with like molten metal. And I stuff saw, like yeah, that. I saw yeah. that one as well. Exactly. Yeah, but that's with fire ants, not with leaf cutting ants. Oh, okay. Is it I, way bigger for leaf cutting ants? Yeah, way bigger, yeah. Will leaf cutting ants like have separate chambers to grow the fungus in and like other chambers where they grow their larvae and everything? Yes, that's a great question. They have specific chambers, one for fungus, one for nursing, and one for waste. And that's actually really important. If you leave ants 
in a Tupperware, the first thing they do is they organize the waste. They say like, okay, this corner is for waste, and they, they put all the waste there. And then they organize everything. But they, they, they're really picky about the waste. And the ants that work in the waste management, they don't go near the nursing. And if they try to go near the nursing area, they, the nurses would kick them out. I had an ant farm once, and... Do you know what species? I don't remember. There's just some, like, little, like, carpenter ants. But they created a, like, a dead body pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever they started to run out of, like, nutrients, they had a pit where they would throw all the dead ones in. It was, like, really kind of sad to watch. It was so... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've seen that, too. Yeah. They collect... They have, like, a cemetery, uh, kind of a cemetery, yeah. It was so... My sister had one as well, and they, like, the ants would just pick up their dead brothers and toss them in a pit. It was kind of uncanny to watch. It's true, yeah. I saw that, too, yeah. All right, let's go to another break, and then I'll tell you about my work during my PhD and my and now what I'm working now. Yes. yes. So now we're gonna listen to Jack's songs. Fighters. Uh, yeah, I saw them live a few years ago. It was I got their tickets for my parents for a Christmas present. And we all went. It was so much fun. So this song is Everlong, mm-hmm. and you you become a fan of the Foo Fighters. Uh, I was always a fan because my mom put them on, or put me on them, and I always liked them. I had them on my like iPod a few years ago. The iPod was the best thing. Now, but, uh, I always loved them like a ton, and when my mom got me tickets, I was so excited. Did you see that the lead singer wrote a book recently? Actually, I have seen that because when we were on a road trip, my parents uh, got the audiobook, and I listened to bits and pieces of it when we were on a road trip. Is it good? Yeah. Yeah. And the song before the break was Sunday by the Cranberries? Uh, yeah, I remember hearing a Cranberry song in a coffee shop with some of my friends, and I had known a little bit about them before but i heard linger i think it was and then sunday was my favorite song so far did you know that the cranberries are actually an irish band um uh, mainly from like limerick and stuff like that so my aunt her two cousins are the brothers in the band just which is really cool when you think about it like. wait 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 what my aunt who married into the family her two cousins are the brothers in the band because the band's two brothers and a woman wow do you know them i've never met them no but i really want to like, would they know who you are? They wouldn't have no idea who if I you am. Say, if you say, my, your aunt, oh, yeah, Mary, if yeah. you explain it. If I dropped her name, I'd be like, oh, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, Shirley's, I'm Shirley's nephew. They'd be like, oh, of course. How are you? you know, wow. so, so I'm waiting for that day to happen. But, uh. 
<laughs> we'll see, we'll see. That's pretty cool. All right, so enough about ants. Now I work with fish. What happened is I wanted to work in behavioral ecology. And so I applied to different labs here in, in the US. And I got into the Rosenthal lab at Texas A&M, our behavioral ecology lab. And it, it's pretty cool. And they use Cyphophorus, that is a genus of freshwater fish, to do behavioral experiments. As soon as I joined the lab, I was offered to work either in a personality project, well, the, the fish personality project, which is pretty fun and really cool. But I was also offered to work in a cancer project. And for some reason, I liked more the question in the cancer project. So I shifted from behavior to molecular ecology and, and more lab work, more molecular stuff. And I, I pursued this project of cancer. And the situation is, I'll try to briefly summarize what's about. I don't know if you know what defines a species. A species is a group of individuals that are reproductively isolated from other individuals. So basically, you are not a dog because you cannot reproduce with a dog, right? You wouldn't have viable offsprings with a dog. And that's a definition that we've constructed and it's the biological definition of species. The problem is that we've constructed that definition and biology doesn't necessarily have to work the way we think it works, right? And there are exceptions to that rule all the time. And things that we consider species actually are able to hybridize and produce viable offsprings. And this we've known for a long time, but we didn't know it as much as we do now because now we have access to look into the genes of the species. So before we would know, for example, that if you mix a donkey with a horse, you get a mule. The mule doesn't cannot reproduce, but you still get something, right? So we knew about cases of hybridization, but now that we can actually look at the genes of species, we know that hybridization is way more common than we thought. So most species have signatures of hybridization from other species, okay? So even humans have traces of DNA from other species. And so this genus of fish, Cyphophorus, is a genus of fish that has a complex history of hybridization. So many species within the genus can hybridize with many others. So cut me whenever you, you want to ask me a question, okay? And what happens in this case related to cancer is that when two particular species hybridize, they develop melanoma, which is skin cancer. And we know because of the proportions of the offspring that get melanoma, we know that it has a simple genetic basis that involves one or two genes. That is not something that it's many, many genes affecting this melanoma. We know it's either one or two genes. And around 20 or 30 years ago, my advisor identified who is the gene that is causing the cancer. And we, we know this gene is an oncogene named Xmark. Okay? It doesn't matter. Xmark, it's a name. And we know that whenever this gene is present, there is cancer. So far, so good? Yep. yep. Okay. We also know that there has to be some other gene that interacts with Xmark so that whenever this other gene is present, the cancer is suppressed or it's at least controlled. So we know there's an oncogene and we know there's a suppressor gene or, or, a, or a gene that regulates the oncogene, at least. Okay. We known for 30 years who the oncogene is, but yet we, could, we were unable to identify this regulator gene. That's what I focused during my PhD. So I went to this fish occur in Mexico. I went there and I collected a lot of fish. I extracted a lot of DNA from them. And then you do a lot of statistical analysis and bioinformatic analysis and, and stuff like that. Population genomics stuff like this, uh, fairly complicated stuff. But in the end, it's basically trying to associate the presence of cancer with a gene, right? It's an association, just like a 
it's a numbers game. You check, 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 check. Okay, whenever this gene is present, cancer is present. Therefore, this is a good candidate. And you and you keep checking, 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 checking. And the more individuals you add, the more you can narrow the list of genes. And in the end, we ended up with one candidate gene. And my role was to test its functionality, whether it worked or not. I, I see you guys are a little confused. How long did it take to, like, go through all the individuals and narrow it down to this one gene? Like, how many individuals? It took me years, and it took hundreds of individuals, yeah. That's you narrowing down the gene that suppresses the cancer. It's trying to narrow down the candidate gene that suppresses the cancer. It doesn't mean that we, we know it is the one. For that, you need to do experiments. But you said you only had one candidate, though. At the end, yes. So why, would, is that just, why isn't that the one? So that's a good question. There's a difference between association and causation. Association is two things are associated until you experimentally prove that there is a relation between them, you cannot say one is the cause of the other. I'll, I'll give you an example. If you graph your height with the average price of houses in Austin, you will find a perfect relationship that as you got taller, prices of the houses in Austin got more expensive. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there's a relationship, that there's a causal relationship. That's an association. It doesn't mean that it, it's a causal relationship. Yeah, I understand the difference. Um, so since, it's, so how, how confident are you, how, are you guys with this candidate say, like how confident are you that this is one that could suppress the cancer? So that's where I focus on my PhD. Okay. I had to functionally test the candidate gene. That's where my PhD was focused. And the way I did that is by doing cell culture experiments. And I actually also did transgenic experiments. The cell culture experiments involve having cells in a Petri dish. I have malignant cells and you do some tests with and without the presence of this candidate gene, and you see whether they become more or less cancerous. And the transgenic stuff, do you guys understand what transgenic means? Like, a, like inserting a different gene or something? Exactly. You, it's a genetically modified organism in which you grab a gene from one species and you put it in another species. What we did is we have this Japanese fish that is called Medaka, that he doesn't get cancer. And first we inserted the oncogene, so X mark, and we gave them cancer. And then I inserted the candidate tumor suppressor gene and I reverted the cancer. I cured their cancer. I'm doing huge oversimplifications here. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. the thing is way more complex, but that's how, that's how I could tell that it was not just an association, that there was some causal relationship be behind that. Uh, at what stage did you insert the different genes? Like you couldn't just insert a gene into a fish when it was full grown, could you? No, that's a great question. The only way that you can guarantee, uh, so, so there are many ways to do it. The way I did it is I grab an egg of this fish when it's a one cell stage, and then I inject my DNA, my foreign species DNA into this one cell stage. And therefore the individual that grows from that cell is gonna have that foreign DNA incorporated to it. You have to catch the organism when it's a one cell stage. And I actually inject under a microscope with a tiny needle that I make myself made of glass. It's a tiny, you, you grab a capillary of glass and you hit it, hit it, hit it and pull until it breaks. And then it makes a needle that's so fine that you can go into one cell, get into the cell, inject DNA and get out and not kill the cell. That's how tiny the cell is. Did you ever mess up and like accidentally damage the cell? My advisor has a 
funny thing that he says that injecting embryos that this this is what I do it's a sophisticated way to kill embryos because at first you're so bad at it that you kill so many that it's it's a pity but you don't do it on purpose it just happens yeah, yeah. how are you able to make like literally microscopic movements machines oh like a robot or a joystick so you have a device adjacent to your microscope that holds the needle for you and therefore it guarantees that all your movements are smoother than that you would do it with your hand you just use a dial to move the needle ever so slightly until it something like that yeah you use a dial and i actually have to step on a pedal to press air into the needle so that it pushes the liquid with the gene inside so i have to get in and then press and then get out yeah complicated procedure but once you, you do it you, you get the hand to it it's actually something that i i would enjoy i would go today i'm injecting like nobody bothers me i go put some good music or some radio or some podcast or something and just go and into my own world into the microscope and inject eggs like, as many as i can yeah how, how many would you be able to inject so it depends on how many eggs the female lays but you have a half an hour window before that cell becomes divides into two cells and then four and then and then it's even quicker every time so you have a half an hour window more or less that it's a one at one cell stage and that's when you should go in you could slow it down a little bit if you put them in ice and give you a little bit more but yeah that's 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 your window more or less but you could do it with several females a female can produce i don't know maybe 20x something and then you could have half an hour to inject 20x and then you could try to grab another female get 20 eggs from her and have an hour more and, and stuff like that, yeah. Could you, do, could you do the full 20 eggs in those 30 minutes? Yes. Yes, because you, you prep them in a way that the first one is hard, but then you're just moving them along a line, like not a line, but a lane, hmm. where you just move the egg and you know that if you do the same movement you did before, you'll be in the same place. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you accommodate, accommodate all the eggs in a position that once you start, it's dun, 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 dun. It would take you like, I don't know, one, two minutes each once you're good. Or maybe even less. I, I, I don't remember. But yeah, you could do 20x in half an hour. Yeah. Uh, how does the gene that like suppresses the cancer work? Does it just regulate the growth of the cancer cells? So, you know, we don't know yet. That's a, a good question too. We, we don't know the mechanism itself that it suppresses cancer. What we know is that this oncogene, so th this might be a little bit complicated, but the oncogene triggers a biochemical cascade the activation of this cascade by this oncogene is really upstream in the cascade. And therefore, it produces a lot of products downwards the cascade, the biochemical cascade. And this suppressor could target any of those products. Do you, do you see the uh, human application in this whole experiment? That's a question I get a lot, yeah. Yes, yes, and i tell you why. Because if we understand the mechanism... So the first step is prove that it works. Then, once we understand the mechanism, how it works... In the end, what you're doing is you're understanding how you're able to suppress cancer. And understanding a way to suppress cancer, even if it's in fish, is always going to be useful. Because we, you, you never know when you can use that information to humans. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. you're understanding a, a molecular mechanism by which you can suppress cancer. And if that molecular mechanism is novel or interesting in some way, maybe you can design drugs to target human cancers that act in the same way as this as this molecule. Uh, is this molecule only really for the skin cancer melanoma, or the, do you think it could be? We don't know. Once we understand more, we'll know. Yeah. 
that's what you did your your phd on so you how long did it take you, how long were you researching that and what stage were you in when you were writing your phd paper the first part of my phd i spent a lot of time in mexico collecting fish and i also did some behavioral analysis like made choice trials and stuff like that to see to try to understand why the cancer would persist in the population. Maybe the females are more attracted to the males that are, have more pigmentation and all that. So I did a lot of behavioral tests. The second part, I went to Germany to do most of the cloning and the transgenic and the cell culture experiments. So this, my PhD, took me six years. Is there a, is there a personal motive behind studying the Xiphophorus and trying to, you know, find this cure for cancer, kind of, you know? Is there a personal motive behind that or just a... It's just scientific one. No, I don't, I don't have a cancer story in my family that it's like my main motivation or something like that, if that's what you're asking. That, yeah, that's exactly what I'm asking. Yeah. Okay, no, it's just my curiosity like that drives me, that has driven me so far to be a scientist. And now that you identified what you think is the, the suppressor gene, where, what are you going to do in your research going forward? We, we're going to try to figure out how it works. What is the, the, the question that Jack asked? How does it suppress cancer? Do you see yourself doing this particular research for the next few years or are you thinking of branching out into other kind of research topics? That's a good one. Eh? And that's someone that I, I always wonder. I like this, what I'm doing now, but during my career, I always chased good questions. So whenever a good question comes around, I wouldn't mind switching. Like I, like the way it works in science is you go, you, you answer a question and then you either continue in that in that direction or just move on to another question. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, just keep going, yeah. Uh, why did you come to America to pursue your studies? Was there, a, you just want to branch out from Uruguay? Did, was there better schools up here? Or, like, what was your motivation to come to the U.S.? In Uruguay, we have good science. But I, I felt like I needed to get out a little bit. And my brothers studied in Kentucky, their undergrads. And so they talked to me a lot about USA and you should go there and check it out. And it was like a big influence. So it was in my head. And then when, my, when I did my master's and my, my thesis and my master's in Uruguay, I thought, okay, now, now would be a good time to, to go and see what's out there. And I, I don't regret it at all. I really recommend it. Yeah, it's a good experience for sure. What was your inspiration to start the podcast? <laughs> During my PhD, somebody introduced me to Radiolab. It's the best science podcast out there. And I, I don't hesitate saying it. They are amazing. They, they chase these amazing stories and they're, they are so good. And I started listening to that and I really liked it. And all my life, I loved radio. When I was a kid, I would fall asleep listening to the radio. And my mom would yell at me because the radio would stay on all night. And then when I saw this podcast thing, I was like, wow, this is really cool. During my PhD, I couldn't do it. And then when I got here... I saw this radio station that is on the way, on the way to my work, and I would bike in front of it every day, and I was like, okay, what am I waiting for? Now, now, let's do it, let's do it, this is the time. And so I, I offered them to start this radio show and this science stories show, and that's how it happened, yeah. How uh, is it starting? Like, getting, getting started, I think we haven't, I think it's kind of difficult for me, being my first time on a podcast, to, to think of things, to keep it going, to put on a good show. So how did you find it starting out a podcast from nothing? I found it more difficult than, it w than I thought it was going to be. So I actually have a, a little story of my first episode ever. It was with my advisor, Dr. Manfred Shardle, who is an eminence in the field. And so when you have a really good relationship with, with someone, you, f you don't realize how much of an eminence he can be. Like you're, you're close to someone, right? Like you with me, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
And, <laughs> and he agreed to be my first guest ever. And now I know how to operate the computer and the, and the console and everything. But for my first show, I didn't. There was one person that was supposed to come here and show me he was going to operate the console for me, and he didn't show up. And so my first episode, I called someone else and said, like, teach me over the phone how to work this console. <laughs> I said, okay, press here, press here, click here, do this, do that. And then I, I did it. I said, like, am I, on, am I on air? I was like, yes. I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. We start recording. So I didn't go to any blogs, didn't do any breaks, didn't do any music, anything, because I didn't want to mess it up. But it was really hard. One of the hardest things of doing this podcast is scheduling people. Believe it or not, it's so hard to get people to agree on a date. And that's really hard. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And also finding people. Like finding interesting. I do a lot of research for every episode. So it has to be something that is fun for me too. So it's it's hard. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Once once they're here, we have a great time. Are you guys having a good time? Yes. Absolutely. It's fun, right? Once you're here. But all the work that goes before, it surprised me how much how much work you have to put into it. And it also surprised me how tiring it is. Radio is tiring. People don't realize this, but it's tiring. Fridays after Science Stories... I'm really tired. Would you ever have a repeat guests on the podcast? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. You guys want to come afterwards? Yeah. Hell yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Explore different topics, man. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite podcast episode so far? Ooh. Besides y this one. You're, you're, <laughs> you're putting me in a spot here, but I would have to say that episode number three with Dr. Mitch Pryor, he, so he's a robotics guy. And he's also a rugby player. I know him from, from the Hans. And he is a teacher. So when he came here, he was the perfect combination between science, stories, and fun. It was a really nice episode. I, that's one I, I really liked. Yeah. Well, if you don't have any other questions, do you guys have a good time? Yeah, it was a great time. Good. It was so much fun. Good, good. Thank you so much for coming to Science Stories. Thank, Thank you for, for inviting us. us. Wow.